morning, church. Just want to say thanks to Annie. Where'd she go? Just for using her gift to bless this congregation over all these years. And as amazing as her voice is, she doesn't even need a microphone. But each of you are equally just as big a gift to this church as she is. And so just an encouragement, you know, when you think about the fact that you're here, it's not an accident. God brought you here for a reason. He's gifted you for a reason to be a blessing to this church in the same way that Annie's a blessing to all of us through singing. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're continuing our series on all these problems in the church here. You know, our neighbor had knee surgery recently, and she's this very sweet lady. Uh, and so we, you know, have been calling to check in on her to make sure that she has everything that she needs. And of course she says, oh yes, I'm fine. Uh, and then the other day she comes hobbling over to our house and she brings us some lumpia that she had made, you know, to bless our family when she's the one who just had knee surgery. Rhonda answers the door and the girls are with her and she asks, you know, how are you doing? How's the recovery going? And she's saying, you know, it's going pretty well. And then she, you know, lifts up her leg to show us the scar that's on her knee you know, and it's like all bruised, and you've got the, you know, stitches and all this kind of stuff. You know, after she left, you know, Olive turned to Rhonda and said, I wish I didn't see that. <laughs> but you think about why would you go through a surgery like that, right? It's painful. Why would you do that? And of course, we know the answer, right? You're willing to put up with a little bit of pain now because it's going to provide you with freedom and joy later. Right? You've all heard the familiar saying, no pain, no gain. And when we think about confrontation in the church, when we think about actually approaching someone who's in sin, you know, we can be like Olive. It's like, I wish I didn't have to do that. But why would we do it? We do it for the good of our brother or sister who's in sin. Because we know that even a little bit of awkwardness Maybe even a little bit of hurt feelings. Maybe even a little bit of misunderstanding. Maybe even the risk of that relationship is worth it. Because we know the outcome will provide future freedom and joy for the person who repents of their sin and trusts Christ. And so that's really what we're talking about today. We're picking up where Tim left off. He talked about when scandal enters the church, and he really talked about two scandals. Of course, there's the scandal in verse 1 of a man in sexual immorality who has his father's wife. But of course, there's even a bigger scandal. I think the, the scandal that Paul's mostly concerned about is not so much this man's individual sin. It's that the church has done nothing to try to restore this man to repentance. In fact, they're welcoming him. They're proud of the fact that, yes, let him still worship. Let him still come here. Let us still think that nothing's wrong. And Paul says that's the scandal, that no one in the church, individually or collectively, did anything to call this man to repentance. So when scandal enters the church, what are we supposed to do? I think Paul outlines two things, that we're to mourn and we're to move toward the person in sin. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll read a couple verses leading up to 9 through 13. Look at verse 1, just to remind ourselves of what's going on in this church. He says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, 
and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now here's the bigger scandal. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Jump down to verse 5. What are they supposed to do? You are to deliver this man to Satan. Why? For the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Right? He wants to see him restored. Then jump down to verse 9, our text for this morning. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? He's talking to the church. He's not even talking to just pastors. To all of us, you're the people that are supposed to judge those inside the church. Verse 13, God judges the outside. What are you to do? Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Father, these are heavy verses for those of us that have experienced church discipline, either being disciplined ourselves and having to be removed from the fellowship of the church or for those that have been witnesses to things. These are sobering verses. But they remind us of our response when we see people in sin that we shouldn't just stand idly by, that we should mourn for those in sin. And that we should move toward them, seeking to have them restored into right relationship with you, first and foremost, and then with to everyone else in the body of Christ. Father, I'm reminded of Christ's words, that when he talks about this in Matthew 18, he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am with you. When you have to go through the hardest times in ministry, the most gut-wrenching, tearful times in ministry, I'm with you. He wants to encourage us to be diligent, even about having to bring discipline to your sheep when they're wandering astray. We don't do it with a wagging finger. We do it with tears in our eyes. Because we know that sin's not good for anyone. And that we long to see them restored to repentance. But again, Lord, this is all of our responsibility. It's not the responsibility of any one person, each of us, is to have an attitude and a mindset that when we see someone in sin, that in love, we seek to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. So Lord, we pray that you would encourage us that way through your word this morning. May each of us mourn and move toward those we know that are in sin. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So just backing up a little bit, I want to talk about first mourning. What should you do when someone is in sin? You should mourn for those who are in sin. Look at verse 2. That's what he says. You're arrogant. What should you be doing instead? Ought you not rather to mourn? How should you respond when you see a brother or sister in sin? You should mourn. 
I think he says you should mourn really for two reasons. First, mourn because sin is bad for them. Right? Why does someone mourn? Because something bad happens, right? Something devastating, actually. You know, if you have like a minor mishap, you know, your car gets a flat tire, you don't mourn generally over a flat tire. You think, oh, that's a bummer. I'm going to have to go change that and get a new tire, blah, 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 blah. You don't mourn for that. What do you mourn for? You mourn for things that are devastating. My wife left me. My dad was diagnosed with cancer. You mourn when those things happen. Right? You get a pit in your stomach when those things happen. Tears well up in your eyes when those things happen. And Paul says that's how you should respond when you see or hear of a brother or sister in sin. You should get a pit in your stomach because you know that that's not good for them. You know, when you hear of a husband that blows up at his wife and his kids again, you shouldn't be quick to say, what's wrong with that guy? Why can't he get his act together? Why can't he see how good he has it? No, you should mourn. You should say, no, this isn't good for him. This isn't good for him. It's not good for his family. We should mourn over sin. You see a teenager in rebellion. You think, oh, what's wrong with their parents? What did they do wrong? Or that kid should know better. They were raised in church. No, we should mourn when someone is in sin. How do we typically respond when we hear of someone in sin? I think sometimes we get angry. How dare they? Don't they know better? Or sometimes we're arrogant, like they, like they are here. We're arrogant. Like, I would never do that. Again, like if you see a kid that's kind of acting up, you think the parents must have, something's wrong with the parents. They're not doing what their due diligence at home. Paul says, no, mourn. Another thing that we do when we hear of someone in sin is we withdraw rather than moving towards someone in sin. And yet Christ calls us to mourn when a brother or sister falls into sin. And this, he's talking about gross sin in 1 Corinthians 5. Like, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And he thinks, he says, the appropriate response is not disgust. The appropriate response is mourning. That someone would believe the lie that this sin is going to be more satisfying than Christ. We should mourn when that happens. Now, there's another assumption that Paul makes when he calls us to mourn, right? We usually don't care if bad things happen to people we don't care about, right? We mourn when bad things happen to people that we love. And so mourn over sin because you love your brother or sister. This is Christ's heart all over the Gospels. Turn to Matthew chapter 9. He mourns over sin because he loves people. Matthew 9, verse 35 says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had what? Compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Our God loves sinners. He has compassion on them. 
It says he looked at the crowds, right? He's not looking at religious people. He's looking at sinners. And what is his heart filled with? Compassion. Not wagging a finger, not recoiling from them, but compassion for them. Are all of these people going to follow Christ? I don't think so, no. And yet, what does Christ still have? Compassion. And what does he say to do? Look at verse 37. He says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. This world, it's not a fruit problem. There are plenty of harassed and helpless people around. What's the problem? There's not enough people with compassion that will go to them, that won't be turned off by their sin, but will actually mourn for them, have compassion for them, and go to them. Do you see people the way that Christ sees people? That when you hear about people in sin, you're moved to compassion, not arrogance, not anger, not apathy, not withdrawal, but compassion. Look again, look at Matthew 23. Even the people that are vehemently opposed to Christ in Matthew 23, the Pharisees, the religious hypocrites, Matthew 23, look at verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Look at verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides! Right? You're blind. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. And he goes on, right? I mean, you're whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. How does Christ feel about these people? Look at verse 37, right after this, right after he says all those things. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. I mean, he's just announced all these woes on these hypocrites, these religious fakes. But what's his heart? His heart's compassion. I wanted to gather you. All of you, like a hen, gathers her brood under her wings. And that's the heart of our Savior. When he sees people in sin, even sin that's opposed to him, he feels compassion. That's our Savior. And that's the heart of restoration in the church. That's the heart of confrontation, loving confrontation. When you see a brother or sister in sin, the heart of it is a love. For that brother or sister, a compassion for them. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We see the heart of our Father in Hebrews chapter 12. Why does He discipline us? Because He loves us. Hebrews 12, verse 5. He says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Watch this. For the Lord disciplines who? The one he loves 
and he chastises every son whom he receives. God loves you. And loving confrontation is part of how God loves you. He disciplines you. Verse 7, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Like one of the blessings that we have of being a son of God is that he disciplines us. Like we should see that as a good thing. And so when we hear of a brother or sister in sin, if we love them, what should we do? Go to them. Restore them. That's the way that our Father treats us. That's the way that we should treat one another. Verse 9, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But watch this. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Right? Why is it not good for someone to be in sin? Because sin is bad for them. Right? Sin, bad. Misery. It's not going to satisfy. Holiness is happiness. Holiness is good. So our Father disciplines us so that we share his holiness. We share in his happiness. And when we hear of a brother or sister in sin, if we love them, if we want what's best for them, we'll go to them. Because we know that sin is bad. Sin leads to misery. Holiness leads to happiness. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God desires our long-term peace. And so he's willing to discipline us. He's willing to bring temporary pain and discomfort into our lives for our good. And we're, if we're just like that, if we're like our Father, that when we see someone in sin, we're willing to bring temporary pain and discomfort into their life, even if it's just the pain and discomfort of a hard conversation, because we want them to share in God's holiness. Look at Matthew 18. We're going to spend some time here in a few, a few different spots. Matthew 18. Again, love is the motivation for all kinds of, of this kind of confrontation. Matthew 18, look at verse 1. It says, At that time the disciples, who came, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Right? So this whole chapter, that's the context. Who is great? You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? I hope so. I mean, I hope all of us want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven— you're not comfortable when your brother or sister's in sin. You don't let them be. You go after them. Look at verse 12. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other 99 that never went away. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish, right? Rescue operation. We've got a straying sheep. What do you do when you have a straying sheep? You go after them. Now look what he says in verse 15, right after that. That's the context. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. 
It's like, wait, 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 wait. No, when I, no, when I think of a straying sheep, I'm thinking of like this cute little innocent sheep that kind of just got off course, and I'm going to be the nice guy, and I'm going to go find that sheep, and I'm going to rescue him. He says, no, the one that you're going to try to rescue is the one who sinned against you. It's like, wait, you want me to go after the one who sinned against me? So, I mean, Jesus is saying, when someone sins against you, your first thought should not be bad for me. Your first thought should be bad for them. That their sin is not good for them. Even if it's against me, my primary concern is not that they sinned against me. My primary concern is that they sinned against God, and this is bad for them. So what do I do? I'm going to go rescue them. I'm not worried about the offense. I'm worried about them being in sin and straying from God. I mean, isn't this just like our Savior? We sinned against him. And what does he think? I need to rescue them. I mean, he's on the cross. He's being murdered. People are hurling insults at him. And he doesn't think bad for me. He thinks bad for them. And he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He goes after us even when we sin against him. And he calls us to do the very same thing. When someone sins against you, don't think bad for me. Think bad for them. And I love them. And go after them. Have a heart that mourns over sin because you know it's bad for them and you love them. And so you mourn for their sin. But it's not enough just to mourn. We also have to move. We have to move toward those in sin. And that's really where we're going to pick up our text, back in 1 Corinthians chapter, not, chapter 5, verse 9. Move towards sinners in the world. Paul's going to make a comment before he even addresses the problem in the church, is what's our relationship to sinners in the world? And he says we should actually be people that move towards sinners in the world, that we're to influence them for salvation. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Right? What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, I wrote you a letter. You had this guy that was sleeping with his father's wife. I wrote you a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. The Corinthians got that letter, and they thought, I bet he's thinking about people in the world. Yeah, we should avoid people, those sexually immoral people out there. Those guys are bad news, right? This is like a deliberate misunderstanding, you know, on the part of the Corinthians, right? You tell your kids, don't go out and hang out with those friends of yours, and then you go off somewhere, you come home, and there's a party at your house, and these ki your kids are with all these friends. And you say, I told you not to go out with them. Yeah, you said not to go out. But I, I had the friends come here, right? That's okay. That's, uh, right? It's a deliberate misunderstanding on the part of your kids so they can do what they want. That's what's going on with the, the Corinthians. Oh, yeah, we'll stay away from those sexually bad people out there in the world. And Paul's saying, I wasn't talking about that. And by the way, you can't do that. It's impossible to do that, nor should you do that. Because you're supposed to be in the world. That's what Jesus says in John 17. You're in the world, not of the world. He even says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but I ask that you protect them from the evil one. 
And just a few chapters later, Jesus is saying, as the Father sent me, where did the Father send him? Into the world, the world full of sinners. So I send you. Where? Into the world. Into a world full of sinners, I'm sending you. You, so when Paul says that you, you got my letter and you thought, oh, don't associate with those people out there. It's like, no, that's the opposite of what you're supposed, you're supposed to go to the people out there. Right? We have this prideful tendency to isolate from sinners. Like, people make these statements, can you believe the things that are happening in this culture? It's like, of course I can! Like, God actually tells us. He gives us an outline of, in Romans chapter 1. When people reject me, here's what happens, step by step. When you look at the world and you see that happens, why are you surprised? That's exactly what's going to happen. God told you that's going to happen. Don't be surprised when sinners sin. That's what they're going to do. One preacher says, too often we preach against the wrong sins. I can get up here and I can preach all about the sins out there. And we can all say, amen, yeah, the world's terrible. Like, why would you send your kids to public school? And you should boycott this and boycott that. Like, that's easy. I mean, like, why would we expect the world to be any different? Paul's saying we actually try to win the people out there. We move toward sinners. Look at this. Paul's going to say it. Look at 1 Corinthians 9. In this very same letter, what's Paul's perspective when it comes to the sin out there? 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. All who? Sinners, right? He says that I might win more of them. See, I'm a slave to all. He doesn't mean I'm a slave to my brothers and sisters in Christ, though he would say that in other places. He, and here he's saying, I'm a slave to the sinner. I want to serve the sinner. Verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew. Why? In order to win Jews. Amen. Like, if it takes, I'm going to not eat a bacon sandwich in order to win a brother who's a, or a Jew, I'll do it. Verse 21. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, right? If it requires that I eat a bacon sandwich in order to win somebody, it's like, I'll do that. And that's a ministry that I like, yeah. <laughs> Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people. He's talking about sinners, right? Out there sinners, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessing. Paul says, I'll, I'm always thinking, like, I'll do whatever it takes to be around sinners. Right? If I have to change what I eat, if I have to change what I dress, I don't care, I'll do it all because I want to win people to Christ. And you think, well, where did Paul learn that? From Jesus. Jesus is called a friend of, of sinners and tax collectors. Matthew 9, the Pharisees, they're looking at Jesus. He's eating with sinners and tax collectors. And they start murmuring among themselves. And Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And he tells the Pharisees, go and learn. You think you know the scriptures? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. 
When you see sin out there, you go out there and you seek to win people to Christ. We don't boycott and cancel sinners. What are we expecting sinners to do before they meet Jesus? Like they're going to sin. What did you do before you met Jesus? You weren't trying to clean your life up. You were sinning, sinning, sinning until God saved you. Right? So boycott Target, boycott Starbucks. How about you go to Target and you go to Starbucks and you try to build a conversation and a relationship with a sinner and hopefully see them saved? Right? Go get your pumpkin spice latte to the glory of God, enjoy it, and look for opportunities to love people and share the gospel. Go to sinners, not be a repeat, like, get away from them. Jesus says, Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. Now watch this, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Like, if you stop being salt, Jesus says, then you're useless as far as the kingdom is concerned. A couple of verses later, he says, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine where? Before men, before people, before sinners. <laughs> Why? So that they might see your good works. They're not going to see your good works if you move and go to some, like, Christian commune and never interact with sinners. They want to see your good works, and they'll glorify your Father in heaven that people will be saved because you're a salt and you're light in a dark place. I mean, when you think about it, it's like, aren't you glad that Jesus was your friend when you were a sinner? That he didn't boycott you, he didn't cancel you, he didn't separate from you, he came and he ate with you. Your sin did not cause him to recoil. It stirred his compassion. And he opened your eyes to see that your sin would never satisfy and that he could. Aren't you glad that Jesus was your friend when you were a sinner? And I think for many of us, aren't you glad that a Christian was your friend when you were a sinner? That they didn't boycott you, they didn't cancel you, that they loved you and prayed for you and checked in on you. That they told you that your sin wouldn't satisfy. That they told you it was a lie, that the things you were believing were a lie, and that they would never lead to, your true, to true and lasting happiness. Aren't you glad that a Christian was your friend? That told you that your sin, that their sin, that your sin didn't cause them to recoil, but it stirred their compassion for them to tell you about one who could take your sin and bring you everlasting peace and joy. So Paul says, no, we don't avoid the sinners out there. We actually move toward them and seek to see them saved. But that's also true when we see sinners in here. We move toward them. So lastly, move toward sinners in the church. Seek to restore them to repentance. Verse 11 back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? 
God judges the outside, right? That's the blessing too, right? We can go out to the world because we don't have to worry about judging the world. We get to go and seek and save the lost, leave judgment to God. But what are we supposed to do when there's immorality in the church? Purge the evil person from among you. The heart of what Paul's saying in these few verses is don't associate with these sexually immoral that are in the church. Now you might think, why is my message, why the point is titled move towards sinners. Paul's saying don't associate. How do those two things go together? But hear me out. But first, what are the characteristic sins? Who are the people that we're supposed to be confronting in love? In verse 11, it says those that are guilty of sexual immorality or greed, idolaters, revilers, drunkards, or swindlers. These are people that have a characteristic pattern of sinful behavior. Not like a one-time, you know, mistake, but people who are characterized by these things. The sexually immoral, he's talking about single people that pursue sexual desires, any sexual desires outside of marriage. He's talking about married people that pursue any kind of sexual desire outside of the one that God has blessed in their marriage. He's talking about any sinful sexual desires that are contrary to God's design. That these are the kinds of people that we should be lovingly talking to about their sin. He mentions the greedy. People that have a pattern of selfish taking instead of giving. Idolaters. People that have a pattern of worshiping anything other than God. Revilers. People that have a pattern of negative cutting comments. They seldom encourage. Drunkards. People that have a pattern of being controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. Swindlers, people that have a pattern of using people instead of serving people. And he says, those are the kinds of people that you should not associate with. He says, actually, that you shouldn't even eat with such a one. I think Paul's saying, desperate times call for desperate measures. Now, you have to remember here, when the church gathered, they did three things. Typically, the early church did three things. They met for worship, to hear, to pray for each other, to hear from the word, to sing together. Then they followed that up with a meal. They all ate together, and then they celebrated the Lord's table at this meal. So when Paul says, don't associate with them, don't even eat with them, I think he's really saying you need to change the nature of your interaction. Right? You don't get to just mix it up like you used to. You don't get to just enjoy fellowship and fun and be around each other and celebrate what God has done together anymore. That the nature of your interactions with a brother like this is that you're seeking to win them to repentance. That when you get together with them, it's not just, hey, how's everything going? Let's go watch the game. No, it's with tears in my eyes, I'm pleading with you to repent of your sin and come back. And really, I think that what he's really talking about is the highlight of the worship service was the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, you, if someone is in sin and they're not repentant, you don't allow them to partake of the Lord's Supper. And I think we've lost a little bit of the specialness of the Lord's Supper sometimes to where we hear that and we think like, oh, what's the big deal? But no, 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 the, the Lord's Supper is a big deal. We're remembering that Christ came and died for our sin and that he's coming again. It's a symbol of our union with him and our unity with one another. It's a meal for all those that want to celebrate what Christ has done. It's not a meal for those that would prefer to stay in sin. 
And so Paul's saying, you would not let them enjoy that meal with you anymore until they repent. That's really what the term, you might have heard the term excommunicate, right? Ex, right, away from, stop, right? From communicate, communion. Excommunicate means that I'm barring them from celebrating the Lord's Supper. And that's a big deal. Now, what would that look like in our context? Again, the goal would be repentance. And so the nature, again, of our interactions with that brother or sister would change. It's not just joyful fellowship anymore. It's No, it's pleading with you with tears in my eyes that you would turn from your sin and turn back to Christ. It might be that we would ask someone not to attend worship services unless they're truly seeking to repent to the Lord. We would ask them to not take the Lord's Supper together with us. And we would not want to have just normal fellowship with them. Right? What's the goal? In verse 5, it says, Deliver this man to Satan. Put him out. Put him out in the world. Why? To, for the destruction of his flesh that his soul might be saved. You know, I think we have this, again, a fearful tendency to be inactive when we see sin in the church. That we assume, like, oh, somebody else will handle it. Somebody else will probably talk to him. I mean, who am I really to talk? I mean, I have, I have my own struggles, so it's like, who am I to talk to them? It's like, I'll tell you who you are. You're your brother's keeper. And if you know that there's sin in somebody's life, if I love my brother or my sister, what am I going to do? I'm going to go to them. And it's my responsibility. It's each of our personal responsibilities to reach out when there's a brother or sister in sin. Because why? Sin's not good for them, and I love them. So why would I leave them in that? Now let's go back to Matthew 18, because I think what Paul's describing in 1 Corinthians 5 is really the last step of a process that Jesus describes in Matthew 18. We already talked about Matthew 18. You want to be great in the kingdom? These are the kinds of things that you should do. The goal is rescue. Why would you have anyone go through this process? Again, the goal is rescue. Jesus outlines, here's the process when you see a brother or sister in sin. Verse 15. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. What's step one when someone sins against you? What do you do? I wait for them to come to me. No, because you're not thinking bad for me. You're thinking bad for them. So what's, what do I do if it's bad for them? I go to them, and I seek to rescue them, and I keep it one-on-one. -on -one. Their sin does not have to go to anybody else. The only two people that know about it are me and the person, and I, by all, I'm fine with God keeping it that way if they repent of their sin. I don't need to broadcast it to anybody else. Galatians 6 says, if anyone is caught in a trespass, I love that word caught because it has this idea of we should see a sin as something that deceives us, that takes us by surprise. If anyone is caught in a sin, what do we do? Seek to restore someone with a spirit of gentleness. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus actually said, if you know that someone has something against you, he says, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother. So, I mean, so think about this. Jesus said, if someone sins against you, you're the offended. You have a responsibility as the offended to go. In chapter 5, he says, if you're the offender, 
You have a responsibility to go. And then Paul says in Galatians 6, if anyone sins, go and seek to restore. So when you hear someone in sin, you should think my responsibility is to go. Whether I'm offender, offended, or simply a witness, I'm going to go after my brother or my sister because I love them and sin's bad for them, so I'm going to go to them. That's step one. You want to gain your brother. Now, sometimes people won't listen. So verse 16, Jesus describes step two. It says, If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Right? So step two is, I need to get a trusted friend, a brother, maybe a leader, and I'm going to have them go with me as we talk to this brother or sister in sin. And again, our goal is restoration. We're going to pray. We're going to ask that God opens their eyes. We're going to go to them and plead with them to repent. And sometimes, probably most times, they'll listen, and they'll repent, and it doesn't have to get beyond that circle of two or three. But if, it, if they don't repent, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is not a shaming thing. When Jesus says, tell it to the church, I think what he's saying is basically release the rescuers, right? Release the church to go after this sheep. They're not listening to one. They're not listening to two or three. Let's send 400 over to their house and ask them to repent and come to their senses. Go get that sheep. Bring him back. And then, of course, Jesus says that they may not even listen to the whole church. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, even to all of us, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I think that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 5, that that's the step that we're at. This brother is in sin. He's not repenting. Everybody knows about it. And he's refusing to be reconciled. And so what does Paul do? He says, don't associate. Put him out. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 3. I think this is a helpful verse as you think about. So what should the nature of our interactions be with this brother or sister? Like if we saw him in the street, what should we do? Should we run to the other side? 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14. It says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Verse 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. I think that's what Paul's talking about. He says, don't, don't let the association be normal. Don't let it be just like, hey, we're having fun, everything's fine. He says, no, go to them and warn them as a brother. That's how we you treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. Go and warn them. Call them to repentance. Again, when he says, don't eat with such a one, I think he's talking about the gathered church when you all get together. But by all means, if you have a relationship with the individual who's in sin, go to that person in sin and warn them as a brother. You know, some people might ask, well, how does this work like if the person in sin is like a family member? Like, what if it's my spouse? Am I not supposed to eat with my spouse? I think, again, that's not what Paul's talking about, right? Paul's talking about the gathered church when you're all together, don't let this person come in and interact as though everything's normal. You're warning them as a brother. 
Now, if they're a family member, of course you're going to eat with them still, right? If you're married to the person, you still would be with them. You would eat with them. But again, the nature of your interaction would change. That at my, the heart of it, I'm going to take every opportunity I can to plead with this, my beloved spouse to be reconciled to God. And you would do it again with tears in your eyes. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we'll end here. I love Paul's statement in verse 7. I think it really gets at what the heart, what's the heart of all of this. It's that we want to live in such a way that we celebrate verse 7. It says, Cleanse out the old lump, old leaven, that you, were, that you, may, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Why are you unleavened? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Right? In Paul's mind, every time we gather together as a church, we're basically celebrating Passover. Every gathering, that's the nature of what we're doing when we come, especially when we celebrate the Lord's table. That God passed over our sins. That Christ was our Passover lamb and that by his blood that's been spread over us and we no longer fear death. Not an angel of death, but actually the wrath of God that was going to be poured out on us is no longer going to be poured out on us. Why? Because the blood of Christ has been spread over your head. That's what, that's what should characterize every time we get together. So if someone's living in sin, and they're coming together to what is a celebration of the fact that God has passed over our sins, that doesn't make any sense. And we want to make sure that this brother or sister knows about it. But even beyond that, it's like our whole life is a celebration of Passover. <laughs> Every single day we get to celebrate the fact that God passed over our sins. The entire Christian life is to be a celebration of Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We rejoice every day over his past deliverance from the penalty of sin. We rejoice every day at his present deliverance over the power of sin. And we'll rejoice in the future deliverance that we'll have when we're finally free from the presence of sin forever. Death has passed over us. We are his children. We get to celebrate this every day. In fact, we'll celebrate this for the rest of eternity. Amen. Revelation 5, what are we singing for all eternity? Worthy are you. Why? Because you were slain and purchased for yourself a people for God. All eternity. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Our whole life is a celebration of Passover. I love in Exodus chapter 12, God puts into practice the Passover. You're going to do this, you're going to have no leaven, and you're going to do all these different things. Inevitably, he says, your children are going to ask you, why are you doing all this? And what are you going to tell them? That God delivered us. People should look at your life, and they should be like, why are you like this? Like, how do you have joy in the midst of these crazy circumstances? Like, why is it that you love people that don't love you? Like, that's, what's going, that's really what the heart of Exodus. Like, why are you celebrating this? Like, what's the, what's the big deal? And hopefully we'll have opportunity to tell you. I'll tell you what the big deal is. I'll tell you why I can celebrate every single day. 
Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And I get to enjoy a lifetime of celebration, an eternal lifetime of celebration, knowing that my sins are forever dealt with, and I look forward to being in eternity with him. So when you see a brother or sister in sin, how do you respond? Do you think, shame on you? Do better? You say, no, brother, you're missing out on the celebration. Christ has come. He's delivered. He's delivering. He will deliver. Come back. Don't believe what your sin is telling you. It's not going to satisfy. Only Christ is going to satisfy you. Come back. Christ is better. Fullness of joy is found at his right hand forever. Mourn when you hear of a brother or sister in sin and move toward them. And I hope that if I'm ever in sin, that you'll come after me. I'm going to ask, would you love me enough to come after me if you see me in sin? By God's grace, I'll do the same for you, and we'll do the same for one another, and we'll keep this a joyous celebration of Christ, our Passover lamb, having been sacrificed. Let's pray. Father, we are so in need of just a reminder again and again of all the things that Christ has done for us. I mean, personally, celebrating communion once a month, it doesn't seem like enough. In a sense, we should be doing it every single day. Waking up every single day and rejoicing over the fact that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. The wrath of God is gone. It's not hanging over us anymore because it was poured out on your son. And if we truly believe that, our lives should be a celebration of everything that Christ has done. And if we see someone in sin, whether they're inside the church or outside the church, we should want to bring that person into this celebration that their sins can be dealt with, that their blood doesn't have to be spilled, that Christ came and he sacrificed himself in their place, and that the thing that they're searching after is never going to satisfy them. And with compassionate hearts, we get to tell people that. I pray that you would help us to believe that sin is bad and that you would help us to truly love those of us in the church as well as those outside the church so that when we see sin, we mourn and we move to go after people in sin. Lord, I'm thankful. I think of John chapter 15, that you're the vine, that Christ is the vine, we're the branches, and that you will bear good fruit through us. If we go out and we seek to reconcile sinners, sinners in the church, sinners outside of the church, we seek to reconcile them to you. You say the harvest is plentiful. So give us hearts of compassion like our Savior. Help us to move. It's, fear, it's a fearful thing sometimes. Sometimes we might worry we don't have the words to say. Let us trust that the Spirit will give us the words in the moment. Sometimes we might fear how the person will respond, but it really, if we care more about them than we do about us, we don't care how they respond we'd be willing to do it anyway because we know it's what's best for them. Help us to love each other that way. Fill us with your spirit so we would love like Christ loves. In Christ's name we pray, amen.